This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That I'm joined today on the podcast by Kieran Maguire, who has written the football book Price of Football and is also an academic who specialises in football finance. Kieran, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Callum. It's a pleasure to be here. I would like to start, we'll obviously be talking about the current situation. The COVID-19 crisis has ensured that football has been suspended for, for quite a long time. You ex- your, your expertise is in football finance and how do you think this is going to impact clubs, especially at the lower league level? Um, I think it's going to be very challenging. Um, unless unless heads are knocked together, then clubs are going to go out of existence. It is going to require uh, a combined effort. Um, as, as much as I would be low to ever say anything positive about a Goldman Sachs Brexiteer Tory Chancellor, what, what he has done as a sticking plaster is actually quite good um, in terms of committing to pay wages if, if uh, employees are furloughed, deferring tax payments and so on. But that doesn't address the fact that football clubs have got nothing coming in at the lower level. Um, they, the SPFL, the SFA have got a sort of a, uh, an emergency fund of one and a half million pounds. Well, that, that's not going to go very far, but yet that's all they can do at present. Um, so it, it's now up for hopefully players to to realise that in the short term, um, just like many other people, they're, they're going to have to take a financial hit. Um, and then whenever normality returns, we, 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 and the new normality might not be the same as the old normality for what we've been used to, um, I think there'll be a, a fairly seismic shock to uh, the football industry in the terms, in, in the ways in which it's run itself historically. Uh, having said that, in my, my analysis of Scottish clubs is that in the main, they are run far better than English clubs. I, I understand what you mean by that, and, and, and it's a situation that, that deeply worries me. I mean, we, we saw the situation at Bury Football Club last season, and um, no, I say last season, this season, and um, that was deeply concerning. You look at lots of those clubs that are Further down the pyramid, the National League, I think, have said there's at least 23 clubs who are in grave danger if there isn't some sort of financial pot put in place to protect them. How do you think the governing bodies in England should approach this because of the situation? There's been suggestions that Premier League clubs could give up some money. Personally, I don't see that happening. What do you think is the most realistic way forward? Um, well, the, the Premier League clubs won't give up the money for two reasons. First of all, they're not particularly interested in the National League. Uh, and secondly, two-thirds of clubs in the Premier League are actually losing money themselves. And some of them are, are losing figures in excess of £100 million. Um, so that's, that's the first issue, I would say. And secondly, uh, in terms of the National League, why are the clubs so quickly in a financial crisis it's because you've got clubs who are in the, the fifth or sixth tier of English football 
who are losing 10, 20, 30, 40,000 pounds a week um, on a regular basis before the crisis hit. So therefore they were in a very poor position to deal with any shocks to football. Um, they, they, would have, they would have struggled with a small shock. They've been reliant on owners bailing them out. Uh, and now we've got sort of a, a perfect storm of this is, I'm not, I'm not trying to scaremonger or be over melodramatic. This is the biggest challenge we face since the Second World War. And so this is a huge shock to the whole of society. And football's not important um, you know, in, in any of this. You know, the healthcare workers, the people who are working in shops when people are acting like absolute idiots um, at present, you know, those are the people who we should be looking after. Um, so football is an irrelevance. But it is also a distraction, um, and it will be, and it will be a necessary distraction when we return. Uh, if if you are losing that amount of money um, and you're reliant on owners, well, the the owners' own businesses they'll be hitting shocks, uh, they'll be struggling as well because they'll be having to lay off workers. They won't be able to um, su supply goods to customers because we've now got an edict that unless you're in the essential industries, that you've got to close down your business. So if they've been propped up in the past by owners, I'm not sure that the owners will be able to carry on doing so. So we've got huge problems. We've got no income coming in through the turnstiles, which in the lower leagues is, is the vast majority. And you've got, no, um, you've got no owners able to subsidize the clubs in the way that they used to historically. Um, so unless everybody at the club takes an adult approach to this and say, well, we're in this together as much as we can, then I think clubs will just simply go to the wall. In terms of clubs potentially going to the wall, as a football fan, I have to be honest with you, I'm surprised that the, at the sort of reckless approach to finance that so many clubs in England and a few clubs in Scotland, to be fair, have as well. And the reason I say that is because you look at the last sort of 20 years you look at teams like Portsmouth have really struggled. You look at teams like Blackpool. We've seen Bury go out of business. Rushton and Diamonds, teams like that who've had to set up Phoenix clubs due to previous ownership. Chester, another one. Um, and I just think to myself, how on earth can we still be in a position where so many clubs are spending money they just don't have? And obviously this situation's unprecedented, but it just goes to show you that there's a sheer lack of contingency in football. And do you think this could be a wake-up call or do you think football will just get back to, to being its normal self when it returns? Um, I, I think we both like to think that uh, the good people in football, they, they will be seen as being the, the, the torchbearers and things will improve. Um, I, I fear um, we'll, we will return to normal. The football industry knows what's good and what's bad. But it's, a, like, like, it's, like, it's like a person who's smoking 40 a day and knocking back seven or eight pints. They're just in complete denial um, that it's going to affect them until it does affect them. And then, then it's too late. Um, there will be there, there's no love in football between many of the owners. Um, you know, I, I, I don't follow Scottish football as closely as perhaps I should do, but you know, being down here, you, you don't tend to get a lot of exposure. But there, there seems to be an awful lot of dislike between clubs, um, which I find unusual. Rivalry is one thing, um, but the, the petty point scoring is another. What we're certainly seeing in English football are clubs 
especially in the English Championship, which is the, the division in which the greatest rewards lie via promotion, uh, we, we've got clubs at, at fairly much uh, pointing, pointing guns at each other um, through lawyers and so on, um, and, and the squabbles are very tawdry. Uh, so I, I don't think they learn. Um, a lot of it's got to do with the nature of the owners of clubs, because ultimately the owner of a club sets the agenda, sets the culture of those the, the club, and we're dealing with people who are very successful. Uh, there's no doubt about that. The vast majority of them have to be very successful um, in order to be able to subsidise the clubs to the extent that they do. But they've also got huge egos, and they're used to getting their way. So therefore, being in a... Uh, being in a competitive environment where only three of them are going to get promoted each year sometimes brings out the worst in people. I, I totally agree with that. And I think it's something that, that as you've said, the worry for myself is it will go back to normal and that the, the, the thrill of promotion and the dread of relegation will, will just, again, have its the same hold that it does over so many club owners at the moment. What I want to move on to, to discuss now is is, is Price of Football, your book. You've described yourself as the author of a hard-to-find overpriced book and football finances rain man, according to a club owner. Um, what was it? Yes, there's a word missing there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what was the inspiration behind writing the book? I spoke to Daniel G yesterday. He's got a book on football finance as well, and it was him yeah. that recommended your work to me. And since he's recommended it, I've, I've followed you on Twitter, and I really enjoy your podcast and your book. Um, well, I, 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 there was no inspiration for it. I, I, I never wanted to write a book. I mean, I, I, I've managed to get into a position where I teach football finance, and, and there wasn't a book there uh, for students. And effectively, we were relying on... Um, bits and pieces off the internet. Uh, you know, I, I know Daniel myself, and Daniel was supposed to be doing a sort of a wouldn't say a tour, but we're, we're going to, we're going to do a couple of joint events together originally. Uh, and Daniel was a great guy. Um, I've got a huge amount of respect for him. Uh, you know, he's uh, he, he's he's trying to shine a light on uh, what goes on in the game. Um, I, I was approached by a publisher sort of about two years ago, uh, saying that he'd. He'd seen me on TV talking about football finance, and he felt that there was a gap in the market. And I had sort of been thinking that something needs to be produced for students because there are more and more people who are studying the industry. And I've always tended to do a lot on football um, when I'm doing general finance modules, because if I go into a class and I say, well, today we're looking at the accounts of Marks and Spencers, I know that within 30 seconds, 80% of people are on their mobile phones and they're busy on Facebook and TikTok and God knows what else uh, because they just find the subject matter dull. If I, if I walk into a class, uh, um, you know, I, I work in Liverpool. So Liverpool is probably a bit like, you know, there's many other cities. Some, you know, Glasgow comes to mind and Newcastle and places like Liverpool is a football mad city. So if I walk into a class and say, the reason why Manchester United haven't signed any players this summer to date is because they owe £258 million to other clubs. All of a sudden, the students go, what? I never knew that. This is interesting. Show me where. Uh, and I, I was sort of using football clubs as a Trojan horse for, tr 
for teaching traditional finance uh, principles and, and getting people to, to know where to look in terms of the small print and so on. So I was approached by a publisher, um, a, a guy, funnily enough, uh, and this will, this will resonate with some Scottish uh, football fans, uh, the publisher is a guy called Stephen Gerrard. Um, and he owns a, a small publishing house called Agenda Publishing in Newcastle. Uh, so he persuaded me to do it, and it was an absolute nightmare. Um, it took me over two years. Uh, the first version of the book, he said, was too dry. No, um, So I rewrote it as I would write perhaps for a fanzine, and he said, you can't say half the things that I said in the book mainly about Mike Ashley, um, because you'll have no credibility by, by using some of the uh, more fruity language. So then I rewrote it a third time to try to get some sort of halfway house. And by that time, a lot of the data was out of date. So I had to go and reconfigure all of the numbers. And, all, and if, you, if you have taken a look, it's got, it's got over 200 charts and tables and bits from accounts and so on. So I wanted it to be as up to date as possible. So I did a, a third rewrite. And, and then finally, um, we published just in time to miss the Christmas market by bringing it out on January the 16th. <laughs> um, what I want to talk to you about is, is football ownership. That's something that is, is, is a very big part of the book. You explore various ownership models from the overseas model in government wealth fund sort of agenda with Manchester City and individuals sort of you could call for want of a better phrase a vanity project Chelsea Newcastle come to mind and brand extension obviously we've seen the Red Bull teams um, in, in recent years as well in terms of football ownership models could you just give us a wee bit of an insight into the sort of differences between them well I think football is, is an unusual industry because if I'm Apple, I want to put Samsung out of business um, because I, I want to be just a, you know, the only kid in the park. With, with football, it's strange that you need some form of competition. So it's actually important. Um, and I, I've got no dog in this particular fight. It's actually important, I think, for Celtic to have a strong Rangers and vice versa. It's important for Liverpool to have a strong Manchester United and vice versa. Um, but what we do see is that, uh, that the Premier League, as a brand, is one of the most successful brands in the world. And if you own one of those 20, and I, and I'm, I'm, I use this word facetiously, if you own one of those 20 franchises, that improves your brand as well. So therefore, with the likes of Abu Dhabi United, who own Manchester City, um, they, they bought into Manchester City as a football club because they wanted to improve the name of Abu Dhabi. Um, if you look at Roman Abramovich, he wanted to um, improve his reputation, uh, you know, to, to actually get himself a reputation, to get himself to be seen as part of British society, which, which he achieved until he fell out with Boris Johnson. Um, so, so we've got some people who see, see a, a football club as a billionaire's bauble. It's, it's exactly the same as owning a yacht. It's exactly the same as having a big flat in Monte Carlo. But the difference is there's more than 20 yachts. There's more than 20 flats in Monte Carlo. There's only 20 football clubs in the Premier League. So it actually gives you a huge amount of kudos amongst the, the uber rich, you know, the people whose wealth we cannot contemplate if you own one of those clubs. 
So that that attracted some people in. Um, in terms of Manchester United, Ma Manchester United is just like another corporation. Um, it is it is pretty successful. Um, not as successful as people probably believe it to be, because the majority of the his if you look at the history of Manchester United, um, they they've spent over eight hundred million pounds in transfers since the Glazers took over, but they've also spent eight hundred million pounds paying the bank's interest. So uh, it, it, it's a strange model, but uh, it, it works for them, and they bought the club for seven hundred million pounds, and they could probably sell it for three times that amount today, even in the present state of the the nightmare which is Wall Street. So we've got people buying clubs for different reasons, and you've also got fans owning clubs. So if you if you look at what happened to Huddersfield Town when they were in the Premier League, they were owned by a local guy called Dean Hoyle. Um, you've got Steve Parrish at Crystal Palace. You've got uh, the Coates family at, uh, uh, at Stoke City um, and, and my team, Brighton Hove Albion. We're owned by a guy called Tony Bloom. Um, we know he's very, very rich. We know he's very, very smart. And, and we think he walks on water. Um, so it, it's all of these different people buying football clubs for different reasons. Some because they're fans, some because they want to extend the brand, some because they just want to be famous. Um, and you don't get that if you are making lamp bulbs. You don't get that if you are uh, if you are making wine. It, it's it's a it's a really weird industry um, because it's a minestrone. There is no one reason to own a football club, and I think that's part of the reason why it is fascinating uh, and why it's also so precarious. Fascinating answer. Thank you very much for that. And I want to kind of put you on the spot here with a man you're not too keen on, and that man's Mike Ashley. And the question I want to ask you about this, I know you need to be careful with what you say. Mike Ashley's put Newcastle up for sale more times than, I don't know, more times than you wake up in the morning on a yearly basis. I feel that, <laughs> that every t every time, every few months you read the paper, it's there's a new price set for Newcastle and there's a new consortium interested. Does Mike Ashley, in your opinion, actually want to sell Newcastle or is it just bluster? He does want to sell Newcastle because... Without going into too much detail, I've seen documentation that supports that. Um, and whilst I don't think that Mike Ashley is the best football club owner in, in, the, in the UK, he's also far from the worst. And this is something which does upset Newcastle fans. Mike Ashley um, has lent Newcastle United £111 million interest-free. Now, if you contrast that with, say, the owners at West Ham... They've lent the club £45 million, but they've recharged it £18 million in interest. So he, trying to work out, Ashley, he's an incredibly complex figure. Um, what he wants is, having bought the club for about £140 million, having lent it another £110, we're up to £250. The way that Mike Ashley operates is he wants to make a profit. So... People that were coming in with offers of around about £250 million, he was knocking back purely because that wouldn't allow him, in his own mind, to have made a profit. Now, the price then got increased to around about 300 million people, and there were a few tyre kickers knocking around. Um, and I think he would have perhaps six or eight months ago sold it for that figure if somebody came in with a serious offer. But there's also what you do find in football, that there's... a Football attracts lunatics. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know whether you've ever seen uh, the guy Lawrence Bassimi. He was the one who came to mind. <laughs> used to own Watford. 
Um, he was then banned from being uh, in charge of a football club for three years. He then turned up at Bolton um, last summer, claiming he was going to take over the club. Um, he, he's, a, he's a fantasist. He's, the, the guy is an absolute lunatic. Um, and since then, he's been associated with other takeovers as well. Um, I think Oldham was was the most recent one. And it's he's just... It just it's it's a crazy industry which attracts crazy people because if you owned another company which had a turnover if you take Bolton Wanderers you know, a company which has got a turnover of say ten to twelve million pounds nobody will have heard of you but if that company's Bolton Wanderers everybody's heard of you because. It's a small industry with a very big voice and a very big media voice as well. Um, and that's why we get people whose motives are uh, just a, a huge variety of crazy. What do you say, Kieran, to people that say that the game is, is not as good as it used to be because there's too much money in the game now? I, I, I disagree. Um, the, the reason why there is money in the game is because we as consumers buy into the game. We pay the subscriptions for Sky and BT. We pay £60 for a piece of polyester with the name of a betting company from Malta on the front of it because we choose to do so. Um, It's a very successful product because it is drama. It is excitement. It is unpredictable. um, And as somebody that goes to football... Because I, I, because there is no football at present, I, I suspect like many football fans, I've been trawling through YouTube and I've been I saw you know the, the classic matches of the day. The football wasn't very good. Um, the players were not the professional athletes that we see today. We don't realise yet just how much fitter the players are. They, they are now like thoroughbred racehorses. Um, and I'm old enough to remember football in the 70s and 80s. And whilst myself and my mates, when we go to the pub before a match, we like to reminisce about that night in Wolves in 1981. What we also don't say is actually we were totally petrified because we'd won 1-0 on a Tuesday night and we had to run to the station because the police abandoned us and there were 300 Wolves fans after a dozen of us herring for the train and we just escaped with our lives. So, so you know, there are many positives that have happened to football over the course of the last 20 or 30 years. We've got rid of racism to a degree, although it's horrible that it's creeping back. Um, it is now more family orientated and, and I feel that I can take, you know, I'm looking forward to taking my granddaughter uh, to her first match, hopefully in a couple of years. I wouldn't have been able to do that when, if I was growing up in the 70s. There's more women coming to matches. Women's football isn't for everyone, but it, it's, it's an interesting view if you want something which is an alternative to men's football. So um, I think football is, in the main, a very good industry. It has attracted a lot of money. Um, I don't personally have an issue with a lot of that money going through to players. And, and the reason for that is that the players are in the main working-class young men who otherwise wouldn't be earning huge amounts of money. And if the money doesn't go to the footballers, it would probably end up in the hands of the club owners. And the club owners are billionaires and multimillionaires to begin with. So um, I'd rather the money go to the people 
who for me are providing me entertainment and joy and tears and all of that emotion. And, and there is nothing more emotional than a football match on a regular basis. If, if I think about the top 10 moments of my life, and this perhaps doesn't reflect very well on me, I suspect if I wrote them down, six of them would involve my football club in, in things which I will never forget. And if you talk to any football fan, that will be the case. I, I, if the players earn money on the back of it, well, it, it's because I choose to pay £500 for a season ticket. It's because I've chosen to pay for my Sky subscription and so on. Nobody's forcing me to do that. And the players get the money at the end of the result, as does the industry. In terms of the players getting the money, I, I'm degree. I think they they are the they are the the people out there who, whether it's the male game, the female game, who are out there on a weekly basis providing us with the entertainment. I want to raise the point of football agents. We've we've seen in recent years that agents seem to be earning more and more money through transfers. Mino Raiola comes to mind. He maybe gets a hard press compared to other agents. I don't know what your view in that is, but do you think there's too much money going out the game to agents? Well, the reason why there's so much money going out of the game to agents is because football clubs agree to the agents' demands. All you have to do is to say no. But football clubs refuse to do so. Um, and the reason why they refuse to do so is that they fear if, the, if they say no, somebody else will say yes. So I think actually the reason why agents are, or some agents, are making huge amounts of money um, and that's, that's not the majority of cases. You know, I think we focus on the on the Premier League. If you drop down at the divisions, the agents aren't making big sums of money. And also, again, this, this is going to sound really sniffy and patronising. It's not intended to be. Many footballers themselves um, are not necessarily um, financially literate. Um, yeah, they, they will be unfamiliar with, uh, with some of the issues in respect of their contracts. And often agents will do a very good job in protecting the interest of the footballer on a longer term basis by making sure that money goes into a pension, by making sure that they do get rewarded for their image rights and things of that nature. Um, there is still a huge problem in football because 40% of former footballers become bankrupt. Um, I, I teach footballers um, on who, are, who have left the game. I teach uh, people who are planning to become managers. I do some courses for the LMA and so on. Um, and you know, when you do talk to them, what you do find is that they are exactly the same as you and me. You know, they are husbands and fathers and brothers and sons and so on. And I think that's one thing we tend to forget. But if, if at the age of 17, 18, 19, somebody comes along and makes you a millionaire um, every year, it's a very difficult environment to, to get familiar with. It's a very familiar environment in, in, in what to do properly as well in terms of your long-term interests. And that's why we see, you know, even footballers, if you think, well, he'd have had a great career. Carlton Cole of West Ham, he went bankrupt. David James has gone bankrupt. You hear many, many more um, struggling. And then when their careers end, the other thing which tends to hit them is that they don't have an organized life. Uh, the, the divorce rates for footballers are horrendous, um, especially when they do finish because they don't know what to do with themselves. Um, uh, Neil Ruddock said um, he, when he retired, 
uh, a couple of weeks later, he had toothache. He didn't know what to do because throughout the whole of his career, the club would organise a doctor, the club would organise a dentist, the club would organise his home insurance, the club would the clubs will do absolutely everything for players at the highest level because all they want the players to do is to concentrate on the game and they don't want any distractions. And then you go from being a hero to having this huge void in the in the lives. Um, and, and I think that players get get actually a pretty hard press. Yes, some of them really don't help themselves. Um, and, and they're the ones that we love to read about because we're all hypocrites. Because we, we, we all love the salacious stories. Um, and, and certainly when, as far as our podcast is concerned, the one question I get asked most of all was probably the most tawdry, probably the most salacious story that we ever covered. Um, and, and that's a reflection of broader societal issues. Issues. You've, you've, you've led me on to what I wanted to talk to you about next, and that is the podcast the Price of Football podcast. Okay. Um, what was the thinking behind that podcast and what's the podcast about for those who maybe haven't tuned in yet? Uh, well, the, the Price of Football, it, it, it was it was a, it's a suggestion by um, a bloke called Guy Kilty and he works for Radio 5 Live. He's one of their business journalists. Um, I used to live quite close to Media City in Manchester um, so therefore, the BBC used to invite me in quite often to speak on football finance issues. Um, so I got to know Guy. I got to know Guy uh, reasonably well because because I used to pop in to do a show called Wake Up to Money, which was for for insomniacs and lunatics. It, cause it used to go out at five fifteen. In fact, it still does um, <laughs> uh, on weekday mornings. Um, yeah, I, Guy's a, he's a fantastic journalist. Yeah, he really knows his stuff. Um, and he then approached me and said he was setting up a podcast production company because he felt that there was there were gaps in in particular markets. And would I fancy doing a show? Um, and I said, well, whilst it's flattering, I'm I have my limitations. I I, I know that I'm a nerd. You know, and and, and nerds are okay in some aspects of life, but they're not people that you want to listen to for long periods of time. So we uh, we said, well, we, we'd probably need a co-host, somebody to um, make it more entertaining. You know, I, I can do sort of the, the, the spreadsheet, I can do the club analysis and so on. Um, and, and so I approached Kevin Day on Twitter, because I've always liked Kevin's work. He used to present Match of the Day 2 here. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he's a fairly relaxed individual. He's, he's a smart guy. He's got a good way with words and so on. So I, I just pitched him on Twitter. And, of course, he doesn't know who the hell I am. So I think initially he was very cautious. But we put out the first show. We recorded it together in London uh, last, I think it, the first show went out last September. So it's called The Price of Football. And, and the aim is to is to explain, as you would explain between two blokes in a pub. And that, effectively, that's what we're trying to do, um, just to explain what's happening in terms of the world of money and football. Um, you know, why are clubs losing money? Why did Berry go out of business? Um, you know, what happened when West Ham moved there from from the Upton Park to their new stadium. Why does everybody hate Mike Ashley and so on? So, so it was. It's just really doing that. And I must confess, I thought the show 
would last three or four weeks. We'd have no listeners and we'd run out of stories. Um, but it, it seems to have hit a hit a nerve with people. Um, we, we get good listener figures. We're getting around about 30,000 listeners per show and, and that's continuing to grow. Um, so we've managed to get attract sort of advertisers now, which which is just as well because we were hiring a, a radio a, a production studio, uh, so we were losing money every week. So we're hoping to break even. I mean, there's no intention of making money from this, um, and we've also put out each week uh, a listeners' questions show, which again I thought, well, nobody's going to write in with questions, but actually now we've, we've got an inbox which is stacked high to the ceiling. Um, so so it's it's working quite well. The show we put out last week, uh, we're starting to get a few guests. Uh, so Neil Doncaster, who you'll know as, as the chief yeah. exec of the SPFL, he came on the show. And, and um, I thought he was absolutely brilliant because he said that there's there's no questions which are off the, the table. You can ask me whatever you want. Um, I don't want editorial control or anything of that nature. Um, so we just sort of asked him some questions from ourselves, but also questions from uh, listeners across a whole range of subjects. So you know, in due course, we're hoping to get more guests on the show to um, explain issues surrounding clubs. We've had a club agent or a football agent on. We've had a football scout on um, and people who you wouldn't necessarily get access to. Brilliant. And as I say, it's a, a podcast that that I genuinely enjoy because football finance is something that the business side of football has always fascinated me because there's far more to a transfer or a takeover than, than us as fans are aware of. Yeah, yeah, there there are a lot of hidden numbers um, in the finances. And I, I know some people will say, and I, and I fully understand it, I, I, I go to football to forget. Uh, yeah, so the last thing I need is, is some some people talking about the finance side, but so it's not for everyone, but we've had quite a few people say, I'm not interested in football and I'm not interested in finance, but I like the show just because it is, it is a gentle show. It's, it's not, it's not complex. We don't use lots of jargon. Um, and, you know, Kevin said he, he would only come on board if we go back to sort of the original principles of, of Lord Reith at the, at the BBC in that he wants it to inform, entertain and educate. So we're trying to do that with uh, equal measure. I want to talk to you about your, about you really and your football uh, passion for football. You're a, you've mentioned you're a Brighton fan. What were your earliest memories of Brighton growing up? Um, I, I I moved to Brighton at the age of 11. So before that, I lived in a small village in the middle of nowhere. So I, I didn't follow a team as such. You know, one, one week I'd like Manchester United, the next week I'd like Leeds or whoever it was going to be because living in a village, you don't really have proper associations. So I, I started watching Brighton from the age of 11 um, and, and, I, and it was OK. Uh, you know, I, I used to go along on a regular basis Um but I think it was only when I went to university in Manchester and I started going to, you know, in, in those days, football was ridiculously cheap. So I would go to Old Trafford one Saturday and I'd go to Main Road the following Saturday because, you know, as, as a person growing up, Manchester was this iconic city. Um, so the opportunity to go there and learn was, as well as watch football, for me was a dream came true. But I very quickly realised that 
whilst it was fascinating being on in the Kipax and, and at the Stratford end, sorry, at the Stratford end, um, it, it wasn't me. Um, and you, sometimes you don't know you love somebody until they're taken away. And I found myself desperate to go and watch Brighton, even though we're rubbish. You know, we, we were sort of always at the bottom end of the old first division. But it doesn't matter because if, if you love someone or something, um, it, it's that it, it's their particular qualities that you appreciate. Um, and that's what attracts you to them. So I, I've, I've trawled all the way through all four divisions um, because it has been it has been an up and down uh, existence. Um, I, I've cried at matches, I've cheered at matches, just the same as any other. Uh, football is, and, and I think Carlo Ancelotti has this absolutely fantastic statement, football is the most important of the unimportant things in life. But God, how I miss it. Um, and I think I've just realised just how much I miss it over the course of the last week and a half. Um, because it gives me, as a bloke, yeah, I'm, I'm practically 60 years old, it gives me the opportunity to see friends who I've been, who I've known for 50 years or more. Um, it gives me a chance to, I'm a pretty mild-mannered guy, to, to say things I wouldn't normally say in polite society. Um, and, and it does have, as I said earlier, it has that drama and that excitement and that unpredictability, which I think you will find nowhere else in life. Who would you say are the best players you've watched at Brighton in your lifetime? In, in terms of opposition players, um, we went to Anfield uh, when we were a second division club and we played them in the FA Cup. And uh, I saw Luis Suarez play that match and he was incredible. He was, he was like an eel. You didn't, he could move from, he could faint and dive, and, well, not dive in the wrong way, but he, could, uh, he just absolutely destroyed us. And players who I thought, oh yeah, we've got a promising centre half. We, we, you know, this guy's got a bit of experience. We were made to look chumps. So um, I would say Suarez is certainly the best individual player I've seen play against Brighton in the Premier League, playing against us. Uh, Eden Hazard. He was a guy. I, I watched him, and, and I swear his his feet were not on the pitch. They just floated about an inch above. Just a, an amazing performer. Um, so I think those would be the, the two the two best that I've seen in, in my lifetime um, as far as Brighton is concerned. I, I lived in Manchester for probably for most of my life, uh, so I've seen City play um, quite a few occasions. I've effectively got a season ticket to watch them play in Europe. Uh, I've seen Lionel Messi play uh, at the Etihad, and he is the best player in the world. And, and there's no argument. It's just, you know he's he is just a different dimension for me in terms of the next few years Brighton are now in the Premier League Graham Potter's doing a very good job assisted by a Scott Billy Reid um, what what are your hopes for Brighton in the next few years do you hope to become a sustainable Premier League club um, or do you hope to have more ambition and try and push for regular top 10 in years to come well the, the, the owner of the club has said that it's his ambition to make us a top 10 club. Um, you know, that, that would be um, beyond my expectations, but it's certainly part of my hopes. Um, at present, football, as you say, at the start of this, football is an irrelevance. But um, at, at present, we, we are looking for survival in the Premier League. It's been a, it's been a funny season because 
Um, the performances have been far better than the results, uh, but we are in danger of being one of those clubs who, for the first half of the season, managed to convince ourselves we're too good to go down, and now we realise we're not. You know, it, it's uh, it, it's going to be a battle. Uh, we've got nine games left. If, if we win three of them, I think we'll definitely stay up. If we draw two and pick up a draw here and there, it could be just enough, um, assuming that there is going to be some form of finish to the season. But clearly that's, uh, that's an uncertainty at present. Uh, it, it's certainly the wish of the football authorities and the football clubs, because I think if we don't finish this season, um, Sky and BT are going to be tapping on the window saying, well, you've not delivered the matches we've paid for, so we want our money back. That, that's a definitely a concern. Last two questions, um, just just for a bit of a laugh. Who would your five-a-side team be um, from players you've watched playing for Brighton in your lifetime? Uh, playing for Brighton, in goal, I would have um, David Stockdale. Um, he's, uh, he's a big lad, so he fills up quite a lot of the goal. So he's been very good for us. Um, we would all, I would also, in midfield or sort of doing all the tricky stuff, I would have Vicente, who was uh, a Spanish international who, who was mainly injured when he was at Brighton. But on the, on the rare occasions when he did play, he was light years ahead of the rest of the squad. Um, up front, I would have Glenn Murray because he's as hard as nails and he knows all of the dirty tricks in the book. Um, I think as a defender, I would have Lewis Dunk, who's our present captain, because he, he, he's one of those players that will, will lay, lay his body on the line for you. So is that four I've got up to? Yeah. It's, it's embarrassing for somebody that teaches numbers who can't count. <laughs> yeah, that's four. That's four. Um, and then I think we need to have a little bit of magic, a little bit of uh, wizardry. Um, so I'd probably go for um, Anthony Knockhart, who, when when the year we were promoted, he was the championship player of the season. He is classically French. He has he stroppy days. He pouts. But you put the ball at his feet, and all he wants to do is to dribble around 20 players. Uh, sometimes he then chooses to dribble around them again and not pass to one of his teammates. But uh, for, for entertainment purposes, I think in five-a-side he'd be perfect. Brilliant. Last question is for yourself. If you could play for any manager in the, in the modern game who's managing at the moment, Klopp, Mourinho, Guardiola, Ancelotti, take your pick, who would it be and why? Uh, it would without doubt be Pep Guardiola. I, I think his intensity. I've, I've read the book Pep Confidential, which was uh, all about his year at, or years at Bayern. Um, and, and I think in terms of somebody that thinks about the game more deeply, that wants to develop individuals more deeply, um, he is is a genius. So um, I, I would it, I would fall, fall at his feet if given the opportunity to play for him. Brilliant. Thank you for joining me, Kieran. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Callum, for the invite. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make 